لقد صدق الله رسوله رؤيا بالحق لتدخلن المسجد الحرام إن شاء الله آمنين محلقين رؤوسكم ومقصرين لا تخافون فعلم ما لم تعلموا فجعل من دون ذلك فتحا قريبا هو الذي أرسل رسوله بالهدى ودين الحق ليظهره على الدين كله وكفى بالله شهيدا Certainly has Allah shown to his messenger the vision and truth. He will surely enter Al-Masjid Al-Haram if Allah wills in safety with your heads shaved and hair shortened, not fearing anyone. He knew what you did not know and has arranged before that a conquest that is near at hand. It is he who sent his messenger with guidance and the religion of truth to manifest it over all religions. And sufficient is Allah as a witness. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 6 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing 100 years of Middle Eastern history after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 6-12, Insurgency and Intifada. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. The Second Intifada begins in the autumn of 2000 when Ariel Sharon's visit to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem sparks outrage. On September 11, 2001, terrorists hijack airplanes and fly them into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. A year and a half later, President George W. Bush invades Iraq, accusing Saddam Hussein of possessing weapons of mass destruction. Soon after Saddam's regime is toppled, a Sunni insurgency begins in Iraq. Meanwhile, the Intifada in Palestine is getting worse and the death toll continues to rise. And with that, let's take a look at the chaos in Iraq. If you'd like to support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content, then become a member of Islamic History Exclusive. We have two membership levels, one free and one paid. At the free level, you get access to Season 0, Season 1, and all bonus episodes. The paid membership level is only $48 a year and gets you everything in the free level plus additional content such as the story of Ibn Zubair, the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, and insha'Allah, much more to come. For more information, visit islamichistoryx.com. Chaos in Iraq Mainstream media has often characterized Iraq as being made up of three different groups, Sunnis, Shiites, and Kurds. And the dynamic between these three groups is often described as Sunnis versus Shiites and Kurds. 
This is an oversimplification. Sunnis and Shiites are religious sects. The Kurds are an ethnic group. Most Iraqis are Arab. Most Arab Iraqis are Shiite. Most Kurdish Iraqis are Sunni. All three groups have their own secular, non-sectarian, or non-religious factions. There were secular Sunni Arab militias, and there were also religious Sunni Arab militias. Most Kurdish militias were secular, but there were also some religious Kurdish militias. There were many secular Shiite factions, most of whom were aligned to the new Iraqi government. But there were also religious Shiite militias, most of whom were linked to Iran. And then there was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Al-Qaeda in Iraq was led by the Jordanian militant known as Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. AQI was only loosely linked to the more well-known Al-Qaeda organization based in Afghanistan. The Iraqi franchise likely borrowed the name Al-Qaeda to give itself a sense of legitimacy and attract international recruits. Many of the founders of AQI were from the original Al-Qaeda group based in Afghanistan. Hundreds of Al-Qaeda militants fled the U.S. bombing campaign in Afghanistan and relocated to other countries. It is believed Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was one of those militants. He may have linked up with other militants intent on returning to Jordan, but decided to stay in Iraq when it became obvious the U.S. intended to invade. Once the invasion and occupation was underway, AQI recruited other foreign militants to join them in Iraq. AQI mostly fought in Iraq but had an international reach. They drew recruits both locally and from other nations. Considering what happened later in the war, they almost certainly intended to spread to other nations. An example of this came in 2005 when AQI militants attacked three hotels in Amman, Jordan. This was the worst terrorist attack in Jordan's history. It led to the deaths of 57 people, including acclaimed director Mustafa Akkad. Mustafa Akkad was celebrating his daughter's wedding when the attacks took place. The Syrian Muslim director was famous for many movies, particularly The Message and Lion of the Desert. AQI had two primary goals in Iraq. Drive the coalition forces out, destabilize Iraq, and force the new government to collapse. To accomplish the first goal, AQI attacked foreigners of all capacities whether they were troops, volunteers, UN personnel, or contractors. To accomplish the second goal, AQI attacked Shiite gatherings at mosques, temples, and during holidays. AQI wanted to force the Shiite-dominated government and Shiite militias to retaliate against Sunni Muslims, thereby triggering a civil war resulting in a collapse of the state. Contractors in Iraq Since the United States military is an all-volunteer force, it did not have enough personnel to occupy, defend, and rebuild Iraq. For the military to do all of that on its own, the United States would have to institute a draft which was politically impossible. But the Americans had a backup plan. 
They hired tens of thousands of contractors from companies like Halliburton and Blackwater to fill this void. The United States' success in Kosovo in 1999 and its toppling of the Taliban in Afghanistan in 2001 led to an over-reliance on military technology. The U.S. had succeeded in both conflicts using air power and technology without deploying hundreds of thousands of ground troops. Once the real fighting was over in Iraq, the United States figured military contractors would assist with things like security, transportation, infrastructure, and various other duties. Of course, this led to problems. In March 2004, Iraqi insurgents attacked a supply convoy in Fallujah, about 30 miles west of Baghdad. Fallujah had been taken over by Iraqi insurgents, and the United States had decided to leave it alone for the time being. Four Blackwater contractors were killed during the attack. Video footage showed their dead bodies being pulled from a burning car, dragged through the streets, and hung from a bridge. This forced the U.S. military to respond, leading to the First Battle of Fallujah. In April 2004, over 2,000 American troops attacked Fallujah with the goal of rooting out the insurgents and finding those responsible for the convoy attack. After nearly a month, over 200 insurgents were killed, along with 600 civilians, mostly women and children. Shocked at the high casualty rate, the Iraqi government pressured the United States to withdraw from Fallujah in early May 2004. Blackwater contractors made the news again in September 2007 when they killed 17 civilians in Baghdad. The contractors claimed they were defending a convoy against insurgents. However, an FBI investigation determined that most of the casualties were innocent civilians. After a lengthy trial and multiple appeals, four of the contractors received hefty punishments. One was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. The other three were each found guilty of manslaughter and received 30-year prison sentences. On December 22, 2020, President Donald Trump pardoned all four convicted contractors. The Shiite Response As Iraq transitioned from occupation to a representative government, Shiites and Kurds were more inclined to participate in the process. Sunnis, who had controlled the country for decades, were not so inclined. Iraq is predominantly Shia. This fact, coupled with Sunni lack of participation, meant that Iraq's security forces were dominated by Shiites. Al-Qaeda in Iraq waged a broad campaign of violence against Iraq's Shiite population. In August 2003, a car bomb killed 95 people at the Masjid of Imam Ali in Najaf, one of the holiest Shiite shrines in the world. In March 2004, insurgents attacked Shiites in Baghdad and Karbala during Ashura celebrations. Using machine guns and grenades, the attackers killed over 140 Shiites. Though it is not certain al-Qaeda in Iraq was responsible, they were the primary suspects. In February 2005, AQI attacked police recruits at Al-Hilla, about 60 miles south of Baghdad. 122 people were killed. Throughout this ordeal, 
Shiite religious and political leaders urged their followers not to retaliate. The Shiites knew the democratic process favored them, and they did not want to ruin it by playing into AQI's hands. But it was getting difficult for Iraq's Shiites to restrain themselves. Eventually, the Shiites formed militias of their own. Given their control of the government, some of these militias were at least loosely connected with the official Iraqi security forces, and some of them also received support from Iran. One such militia was Jaish al-Mahdi, which translates to the Army of the Mahdi. Jaish al-Mahdi had its origins in the early 90s, just after the first Gulf War. Believing Saddam Hussein's regime was vulnerable after being driven from Kuwait, various factions rose up against the dictator. The insurgents were initially successful, but the American assistance they hoped for never materialized. Saddam Hussein eventually crushed the rebellion. After the violence had died down, Saddam Hussein adopted a more conciliatory tone with Adolf's Shiites. He hoped to win them to his side by supporting their leaders and charitable organizations. One such leader was a Shiite scholar named Ayatollah Muhammad Sadiq al-Sadr. With government backing, Ayatollah Sadiq al-Sadr's organization provided humanitarian and religious services to the impoverished Shiite communities in Baghdad and remote Shiite enclaves in the countryside. By the late 90s, however, the relationship between Sadiq al-Sadr and Saddam Hussein had soured. The Shiite leader spoke out against Saddam's transgressions and made it known he was ready to die for his cause. One day in 1999, Sadiq al-Sadr's car was attacked by a group of gunmen. The Ayatollah and two of his sons were killed. After the attack, al-Sadr's followers went underground while his surviving son, Muqtada al-Sadr, was placed under house arrest. The organization sprang back to life after the 2003 invasion with support from a wealthy Iranian religious leader named Ayatollah Qasim al-Ha'idi. With Saddam gone and the nation in chaos, Muqtada al-Sadr's organization filled the void of government services for many Iraqi Shiites. They reopened mosques, provided vital social services, and established a level of security where it could. This security was provided by Muqtada al-Sadr's military wing, Jaysh al-Mahdi. He hoped Jaysh al-Mahdi would become something like Hezbollah in Lebanon and operate as a government within a government in Iraq. In order to do so, Jaysh al-Mahdi had to position itself as enemies of the occupation. Jaysh al-Mahdi fought large-scale gun battles against the coalition on two occasions, losing both times. After the second defeat, Muqtada al-Sadr lost most of his prestige and the militia began to fracture. These fractions were exacerbated when Ayatollah Qasim al-Ha'idi stopped supporting Muqtada al-Sadr. By this time, al-Qaeda in Iraq's campaign of violence against the Shiites had become unbearable. The various splinter groups from Jaysh al-Mahdi ignored the Shiite leadership's advice and began retaliating for the attacks. On February 22, 2006, an AQI bombing destroyed the Golden Dome of the Al-Askari Shrine, another famous Shiite landmark. The next day, Shiite militias launched waves of attacks against Sunni targets. 
27 Sunni mosques in Baghdad were attacked and three Sunni imams were killed. Dozens of seemingly random Sunni civilians were found tortured and shot to death in and around Baghdad. A group of foreign Sunni prisoners were taken from their cells and tortured to death. And with Shiites dominating the government, it was impossible to determine where the police force ended and the militias began. There were accusations of government employees running Shiite death squads targeting Sunnis. Elements within the Iraqi military often carried out illegal executions against Sunni civilians. Nearly a thousand people were killed in the week following the destruction of the Golden Dome. This sectarian violence would carry on for years. American Hubris In building its case for war in Iraq, the Bush administration ignored contradictory warning signs and ideas. The United States was confident once it overthrew Saddam Hussein, the grateful Iraqi people would shower American troops with flour and candy. These American neocons also believed overthrowing Saddam would put pressure on Iran to reform. The United States already had a military presence in Afghanistan on Iran's eastern border. With a new government in Iraq, Iran would be surrounded by two American surrogates. The humanitarian case was also a big factor, at least to the neocons who supported the war. Millions of Iraqis, suffering under Saddam's oppressive regime, could finally experience the wonder of democracy and liberty. Under America's guiding hand, Iraq's vast reserves of oil would go towards building a prosperous new society, just like Japan and West Germany after World War II. The axis of evil would be gone. Iraq would be secure. Iran would be surrounded and contained. And North Korea, seeing what happened in Iraq, would be inclined to make reforms. The United States was confident it was doing the right thing. When UN weapons inspectors confirmed there were no WMDs in Iraq, U.S. officials scoffed at these findings. If the UN could not find the WMDs, it was because Saddam Hussein had hidden them. The U.S. had the testimony of Curveball, the Iraqi expat who claimed to know how and where Saddam was hiding his WMDs. The United States was already committed to the impossible project of rebuilding Afghanistan. But that did not matter. After World War II, the U.S. rebuilt Germany and Japan at the same time. It could do the same with Afghanistan and Iraq. In his 2003 State of the Union speech, President Bush mentioned or referred to weapons of mass destruction at least 27 times. This speech summed up his plan for Iraq. Saddam Hussein had WMDs and by golly, the Americans were going to find him. The war came and America cheered as Saddam's statue was pulled down and President Bush declared, mission accomplished. And then... Saddam was captured, and Americans cheered, as Paul Brimmer gleefully exclaimed, We got him! But then, the insurgency began, and the violence got out of control. And then, American soldiers were caught abusing Iraqi inmates at Abu Ghraib prison. And then, Afghanistan was set aside and forgotten. 
Afghan militants poured into neighboring Pakistan, destabilizing an already weak military government. Months passed and still no WMDs were found in Iraq. As violent as the insurgency was, it was nothing compared to the destruction the U.S. military unleashed. In 2003, the year of the invasion, there were over 12,000 civilian deaths in Iraq as a result of military action. The year after that, 11,000. The next year, 16,000. And in 2006, Iraqi civilian casualties peaked at 29,517. These numbers do not include deaths related to insurgent or terrorist activities. And still, no WMDs were found in Iraq. The American public also got a taste of what real war is about. The first Gulf War was a joke. The Vietnam War was a distant memory. And there were few people alive who still remembered the Korean War or World War II. In the Second Gulf War, casualties on the American side were far lower than on the Iraqi side. Nonetheless, this was the first time in over a generation Americans grappled with the realities of war. Over 4,000 American soldiers were killed in combat between 2003 and 2008. Thousands more were permanently injured. And to this day, thousands upon thousands of Iraq war veterans suffer from PTSD and other associated mental illnesses. In addition to the cost in life, there was the stupendous cost in treasury. An estimated $1.06 trillion was spent on this war. This does not include the war in Afghanistan. Five years after the start of the war, the United States experienced its greatest economic downturn since the Great Depression. While its own infrastructure was crumbling, the United States spent billions of dollars rebuilding roads, hospitals, factories, schools, and much more in Iraq. But the vast majority of this money was wasted through corruption and negligence. Paul Brimmer, head of the Coalition Provisional Authority, requested $12 billion in cash be sent to Iraq. His request was approved and 120,000 $100 bills were wrapped and stacked on pallets, loaded on a cargo plane, and flown to Baghdad. $8 million of that money is still unaccounted for. In another instance of winning hearts and minds, the Americans spent over $2 million building a chicken processing plant. The plan was to buy chickens from local farmers, hire local Iraqis to run the plant, then ship the frozen chicken to local grocery stores who would sell them to local Iraqis. The plant was built and it still stands empty to this day. Whoever approved this project ignored some very obvious realities. Iraqis have raised their own chickens for thousands of years. Electricity in that part of Iraq was too unreliable to power the factory. Most people in rural Iraq did not have refrigerators to store frozen meat. 
And war-torn Iraq did not have conventional grocery stores with a dedicated meat aisle, self-checkout, and shopping carts. All of this, and still no WMDs, were found in Iraq. In January 2004, Secretary of Defense Condoleezza Rice admitted there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. The United States, she said, had acted on faulty intelligence. From that point forward, public support for the war in Iraq began to tumble. The Intifada Continues While the United States was fumbling around in Iraq, the Second Intifada was still raging in Palestine. Throughout 2003, Hamas, PFLP, and PIJ militants carried out numerous attacks in Israel. Some of them were suicide attacks, others were roadside bombs or IEDs. The militants targeted buses, transit stations, cafes, and military posts. These attacks resulted in the deaths of over 100 Israelis, most of them civilians. The IDF was doling out its fair share of violence also. The IDF raided Palestinian towns and enclaves, presumably in the search for militants. These incursions almost always resulted in the deaths of several Palestinian civilians. Israel also employed a policy of tearing down Palestinian homes, often those of family members of suicide attackers, but not always. And Israel continued its campaign of so-called targeted assassinations. These assassinations were often carried out by warplanes and helicopter gunships in congested civilian areas. Hence, collateral damage was inevitable. The Intifada in Gaza Israel's multiple incursions and attacks in Gaza had destroyed the operational capacity of the Palestinian Authority. This left a leadership void which Hamas quickly filled. Israel's border wall prevented most attackers from leaving Gaza. To get around this, Hamas resorted to digging tunnels under the wall, digging tunnels into Egypt, and launching rockets over the wall and into Israeli territory. These rockets were called Al-Qassam rockets, named after Palestinian freedom fighter Azuddin Al-Qassam. He led a peasant revolt against the British mandatory government back in the 1930s. These Al-Qassam rockets were crude weapons, little more than steel tubes launched from a pedestal stuck in the ground. Since Al-Qassam rockets had no guidance system, nor any targeting mechanism, they were considered weapons of indiscriminate destruction. They were very imprecise and inaccurate and rarely caused any significant damage. Israel usually responded with airstrikes, raids, and destroying homes. The continued violence in Gaza attracted several human rights groups and activists. American media tended to be biased in favor of Israel, highlighting Palestinian attacks while barely mentioning Palestinian casualties. These activists, many of whom were from Western nations, hoped to raise awareness of Palestinian suffering in Gaza. In doing so, they often put their life on the line. In March 2003, 23-year-old American activist Rachel Corey was killed in Gaza. Israeli and Palestinian witnesses give different accounts of what happened. 
What we know for certain is that Rachel tried to use her body as a human shield to protect a Palestinian home in Rafah and was killed by the Israeli bulldozer. Rachel was not the only activist killed by Israeli forces. The following month, 22-year-old British activist Tom Herndl was also killed in Gaza. Like Rachel Coring, Tom was working with other activists to prevent Israeli forces from destroying Palestinian homes in Rafah. An Israeli sniper shot Tom while he was trying to seek cover during a shootout. Tom died nine months later from his injuries. The very next month, yet another Westerner was killed by Israeli forces in Gaza. This time, it was 34-year-old Welsh filmmaker James Miller. James was filming a documentary about life in Gaza when he and his cameramen approached an IDF armored personnel carrier. James's crew was carrying a white flag and shouted out that they were British journalists. Nonetheless, shots were fired and James was killed. As mentioned earlier, Israel carried out several assassinations during this period. These assassinations happened so frequently, they rarely made the news even if multiple bystanders were killed. But in March 2004, Israel's assassination of Sheikh Yassin sparked international condemnation. Sheikh Yassin was one of the founders of Hamas and considered the organization's spiritual leader. Paralyzed at a young age, Sheikh Yassin was in his late 60s and nearly blind when he was killed. On the morning of March 22, 2004, Sheikh Yassin was being wheeled to his car after making Salat al-Fajr, the dawn prayer. Israeli helicopter gunships opened fire, killing Sheikh Yassin and 11 other people. Over 200,000 Palestinians attended his funeral. In the previous episode, we mentioned how Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon had a two-part plan to separate Israel from the Palestinian territories. The first part of his plan was to build a wall around the West Bank. That construction began in 2002. In 2005, he put the second part of his plan into action. That February, the Knesset voted to withdraw all Israeli settlers from Gaza. And in September, Israel began evicting all Jewish settlers in Gaza, sometimes forcefully. Once the settlers had been moved out of Gaza, the settlements were destroyed. There are a couple of theories as to why Ariel Sharon did this. Some say he was pressured by the U.S. government. The Americans were having a difficult time in Iraq and needed to prove they were not fighting a war against Islam. Others point to the fact that Sharon was under pressure from the Israeli left. Since he was already under investigation for fraud, he hoped this might appease his political opponents. Still, others say it was a strategic decision. Israel stationed hundreds of soldiers to protect 8,000 settlers from 1.2 million Palestinians in Gaza. The cost just did not justify the benefit. Palestinian Politics Ever since the beginning of the Intifada, Israeli politicians, Ariel Sharon in particular, pinned the blame on Yasser Arafat. The Palestinian chairman had enjoyed a working relationship with previous Israeli prime ministers such as Yitzhak Rabin, Ehud Barak, and even Benjamin Netanyahu. But Sharon seemed to have a personal vendetta against Arafat. 
They both participated in the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. Sharon was a young soldier with the IDF while Arafat transported weapons to Arab soldiers in Gaza. As defense minister, Sharon personally led the Israeli invasion and occupation of Lebanon in 1982. The IDF destroyed the PLO camps in Lebanon, forcing Yasser Arafat to flee to Tunis. The two crossed paths again in 1998 at a U.S.-sponsored peace conference. During the conference, Ariel Sharon refused to shake Arafat's hand, later calling him a dog. Sharon accused Arafat of building a coalition of terror. When Israel seized a shipment of weapons in the Red Sea, they accused Arafat of smuggling them into Palestine. And throughout the entire Second Intifada, Sharon's government accused Arafat and the Palestinian Authority of talking peace in the morning while supporting terrorism at night. Ariel Sharon rejected any sort of peace talk so long as Arafat was in charge of the PA. By mid-2002, the Bush administration had sided with Sharon and stopped dealing with Arafat as well. The United States insisted the peace process could only move forward when the Palestinians had new leadership. As the Intifada dragged on, Israel ramped up the pressure against Arafat. Israeli forces destroyed Arafat's offices in Gaza. In 2002, Israeli tanks surrounded his West Bank headquarters, placing him under virtual house arrest. He was eventually allowed to leave, but was put under siege again later that year. In early 2003, Yasser Arafat finally agreed to appoint a prime minister for the Palestinian Authority. Yasser Arafat would retain the title of president, but he would not be involved in the day-to-day -day affairs. Yasser Arafat appointed Mahmoud Abbas Prime Minister of the Palestinian Authority in March 2003. As a founding member of Fatah, Abbas had worked with the PLO and PA for decades. Mahmoud Abbas was more of a diplomat and had very little militant activity in his background. This made him acceptable to both Israel and the United States. But tensions soon developed between Abbas and Arafat. It appeared Yasser Arafat was not quite ready to give up the reins of power, and the two men often clashed. Abbas was also dissatisfied with how Arafat handled security matters. Mahmoud Abbas resigned from his post as prime minister six months later. Yasser Arafat fell sick in October 2004. The 75-year-old Palestinian leader was flown to Paris for medical treatment, but his condition continued to worsen. Yasser Arafat died in Paris on November 11, 2004. There has always been speculation about the cause of Arafat's death. Many believe he was poisoned by Mossad. Others have pointed out the coincidence that Sheikh Yassin and Yasser Arafat died months apart in 2004. Israel admits to having made several attempts on Arafat's life in the past. However, it denies any involvement with his death in 2004. Whatever the cause, Arafat's death opened the door for new Palestinian leadership. In January 2005, Mahmoud Abbas was elected the second president of the Palestinian Authority. However, many Palestinians considered him a collaborator with Israel and he struggled to build popular appeal. Knowing he'd need the support of Hamas, he tried to bring them into the political process. 
Hamas considered the whole democracy thing a joke as it contradicted their hardline philosophy of armed struggle. Nonetheless, they agreed to participate believing it might help their cause in the long run. That spring, the various Palestinian groups met in Cairo to discuss a future without Arafat. Even the militant groups such as Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine were represented. Ultimately, they agreed to hold local elections in Palestine in order to show a united front. That winter, local elections were held and Hamas did much better than expected. Hamas not only won big in their Gaza stronghold, they also won in many West Bank areas long considered loyal to Fatah. Hamas had stayed away from politics for years, considering it a waste of time and acquiescence to the Israeli-American agenda. They had only agreed to participate in local elections to maintain Palestinian unity. But now, it was obvious the Palestinian people were tired of Fatah, which many viewed as Israeli collaborators. They were ready for new leadership. Emboldened by their success in the winter elections, Hamas announced they would take part in the national elections the following year. It was time to put this democracy thing to the test. In the next episode, we'll see how Gaza became the largest outdoor prison in the world. Well, the internet is a wonderful thing. This podcast only exists because of the internet. Uh, the internet has lots of good stuff, but as we all know, has lots of bad stuff also. One of the, I guess, discouraging things about the internet is that because it has so many things, it can be so difficult to find exactly what you're looking for. I don't know about you, but there's been so many instances where I went into Wikipedia to search one topic and next thing I know I've gone down this rabbit hole through 50 other articles and still haven't found out found what I, what I really wanted same thing on YouTube I see oh this video looks interesting click on it and next thing I know two hours have passed and I've just wasted time with a bunch of foolishness so alhamdulillah there are ways to get around that so if you're looking for something beneficial something good I would suggest you check out imandeli.com. Iman Delhi is an online channel created to inspire young Muslims through posting of aggregated content such as lectures, podcasts, documentaries, recitations, poems, and spoken word. This content on imandeli.com is targeted to all Muslims, but there's a special emphasis and focus on millennial and Gen Z Muslims, and they focus on them by posting uh, relevant topics that affect everyday growth. So check them out. Imandeli is I-M-A-N-D-A-I-L-Y.com. You can visit them at imandeli.com, or you can follow their Instagram page, imandeli underscore com and as always remember i do not get any financial compensation so if i recommend something to you it is because i think it is beneficial there's no quid pro quo don't have any affiliate links i'm not getting paid for anything something i think you will benefit from inshallah You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. 
Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a member of Islamic History Exclusive. Visit islamichistoryx.com for more information. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. You can also make a one-time donation by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate or send a tip via Cash App using the cash tag Islamic History. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Salahuddin goes to war. Even though Salahuddin was angry about Reynald of Chateaulian breaking a truce yet again, it played right into his plans. He wanted to go to war with the Franks, and it was unlikely he'd extend the truce once the year was up. Salahuddin's empire was vast, and it would take several months to get ready for war. He put his son, Al-Afdal, in charge of mobilizing tens of thousands of soldiers from across the empire. Troops came in from Nubia, Egypt, Syria, Anatolia, and Al Jazeera. When all was said and done, Salahuddin would have an army consisting of over 12,000 horsemen and 42,000 infantry. Salahuddin ordered Gokbori, his governor of Haran, to lead a reconnaissance force of 7,000 horsemen through Palestine. In order to do so, Gokbori needed permission from Raymond of Tripoli. This naturally put Raymond in a difficult spot. On the one hand, he was technically an ally of Salahuddin. On the other hand, he was a crusader at heart and had only allied with Salahuddin for protection against King Guy of Jerusalem. Raymond eventually granted permission, but made Gokbori promise not to do any raiding and to leave by nightfall. Gokbori and his 7,000 horsemen raced through Palestine making detailed notes about the terrain and potential battle spots. They also made sure to survey the hills at Safuria, the Franks' traditional battlefield headquarters. A small band of Templars and Hospitallers spotted the Muslim cavalry while they were surveying Palestine. 
Despite being hopelessly outnumbered, they decided to attack Gokbori. With only 130 knights and 300 infantry, the Franks did not stand a chance. Gokbori's cavalry crushed them, killing and capturing nearly the entire force. The Hospitaller Master was killed in the battle, though the Templar Master, Gerard of Ridofort, managed to get away. In April 1187, Salahuddin put the first phase of his plan into action, sending thousands of troops to raid Frankish territory. His nephew Takayuddin raided Frankish lands north of Syria. These attacks were so devastating, Bohemond III of Antioch submitted to Salahuddin as a vassal. 